0: Today on Fuzzy Logic, we're talking marine extremes, going from the beach to the deep. We have a bunch of marine scientists who are joining us right here on XXXFM to talk about their research, the extreme ways they go about it, and they're all part of the annual marine science forum happening down the Sapphire Coast. We're going to tell you more, but that's coming up in today's episode of Fuzzy Logic Good morning, Canberra, and welcome to Fuzzy Logic, your science on a Sunday. My name is Broderick Matthews. It's a pleasure to be in the studio with you today as we delve into the world of science. And today we're diving deep and splashing in the shallows as we're talking about the marine extremes. These are the different extremes of our beach environment. We have three marine scientists who are speaking at the upcoming Marine Science Forum happening down at the Sapphire Coast Marine Discovery Centre. It's an exciting time. It's going to be an amazing show as we start splashing about. And I think it's enough from me. Let's jump in. The first scientist to join us in the studio today is Matt MacArthur. Now, Matt's been studying seafloors from Australia, New Zealand and through to the Antarctic too. But what he's studying might be a little bit interesting. So I'm going to get you to talk about that, Matt, because when we think about being under the seafloor, we think about... Beautiful reefs and corals and kelp gardens and large creatures. but you're not studying that at all, are you?
1: No, I, I do find those areas incredibly exciting, but my work has focused on the mud flats and the sand plains which make up the bulk of the ocean floor.
0: OK, and when we're talking mud flats and sand plains, are we talking uh, shallow levels or deep underwater? Where, whereabouts are we looking?
1: Oh, I've, I've studied systems ranging from estuaries right right in the coast of Australia and New Zealand out into the deep water, off off the coastal margins. So,
0: how how deep is deep? Uh,
1: at my end of the spectrum, one kilometre is deep. But I've got colleagues that are out studying the deep trenches, and um, the the investigator is just heading off now to do some deep water work off the, co- the coast of southern Australia. It's very exciting that um, Tim O'Hara is leading an expedition out there to see what's what's going on in Australia's deep water territory.
0: Have you, have you been on the
1: investigator yourself? I was on its predecessor. I was on the Southern Surveyor when it was coming to the end of its its service life with the Marine National Facility. Uh, my friend Kate Norton is just back from a trip on the investigator and I've been looking at photographs that she brought back and it, it's very exciting to see such a well-sorted vessel in the service of Australian marine science. I'm quite envious of the people that are sailing on it at the moment yeah well
0: i think one of our guests later today is going to be sharing some of their experiences on the uh, rv investigator uh, so that'll be great to hear from them about that Uh, so we we are talking about going out on boats to do some of this sampling uh, in both you know shallow mud flats or deep sand plains what are you looking for in those areas
1: i'm looking mostly at the organisms that live under the sediment surface so when we look at a, a, a sandy plain we tend to think of it as a two-dimensional, flat, sort of almost a paddock in the sea. But there's a lot of life that's going on under the surface of the sediment. So organisms are burrowing into that sand and organisms are living between the grains of sand. So a lot of small stuff, but there's so much of that habitat and there's so much life within that habitat that you end up with this this huge fauna of often very diverse species, uh, Huge species richness, the actual number of species living there and huge biomass, the actual volume of the organisms that make up those systems. And the smaller you go, the more you find. So at the microscope level, you can look down a microscope and see animals in the two and three millimetre size range, but if you if you sample with an even finer mesh sieve, you get animals at the, the half millimetre scale and below and there's even more of them. And the diversity just keeps ramping up until you're down at the microbe level.
0: Okay, so there's a wide range of stuff down there, but what role do these tiny little creatures play?
1: The, the organisms are doing a huge ecological service in terms of secondary production. So you've got your primary production, the sunlight being turned into, into, into food by your, your photosynthetic organisms, And then the secondary production is those organisms that are using the primary production and turning it into protein. And everything ends up falling to the seafloor and decomposing, and these organisms are using, you know, even in the abyssal zones where there's no sunlight reaching them, they're using the protein from the upper waters to cycle in the seafloor. And, yeah, just vast amounts of biology going on out of sight and usually out of mind. Even if you've you've sent cameras cameras down onto the seafloor you might see the occasional sea pig moving along the surface, and some lampreys or or hagfish swimming around. But there's still a lot going on in the ooze underneath them.
0: Yeah, well, I, I'm a bit of a scuba diver myself, and I have done one uh, UV night dive where we focused around uh, corals with UV torches and filters on our masks and there we could see uh, tiny little uh, things glowing. Uh, are, are these the sorts of creatures we're talking about?
1: Um, yeah, well, in almost every system in the sea, the the tiny organisms are there. So whether you're in a coral reef or a, a kelp forest or an abyssal mudflat, the small organisms are taking up what space they can and using what resources are available. The, the life... Um, Life seems to be able to find, find a niche and resources to use in every, every square centimetre of the seafloor.
0: That's that's sounds fair. I mean, that that's what happens up on land. Everyone finds their own niche, and it's it's really interesting to hear that's happening on the seafloor. So, in terms of a, a circle of life here, you said that all the uh, things that photosynthesise use the light to produce um, to produce uh, energy. Uh, eventually filter down to the bottom of the ocean where these uh, these creatures uh, use that uh, for their own energy production. Uh, what's then the next stage in that cycle? What eats these creatures?
1: Um, the, well, Everything ends up going through the bacteria. They're sort of the, the end of most um, organic cycles. And the nutrients may reach the surface again if an upwelling current picks up the water Laden with the nutrients resulting from that big bacterial decay. And that's actually what keeps, um, the mid ocean alive. There's very little, uh, nutrient, nutrient matter in tropical mid ocean areas. But what productivity does occur in the mid ocean is in part driven by upwelling currents bringing nutrients from deeper down in the, in the water column.
0: Okay, and this mid-ocean is some of that uh, that bare ocean that I guess we don't tend to see that much where there are just the, the boring old sand plains.
1: Uh, yes, that's correct.
0: When, we, when we're when we studying these things, how are you getting uh, the samples that you're taking?
1: Uh, my sampling techniques are quite old. They go back to the, the Challenger expedition in the mid-19th century, uh, sending equipment down on the end of a cable and bringing a sample of the, the seafloor back with it. So grab samplers and dredges and trawl nets.
0: Right, and you're sending these down, do these go down as far as a kilometre or is, or is that a bit uh, shallower that you're, you're sampling with these equipment?
1: Most of my work is in very shallow water, but you can send this equipment down very deep.
0: Okay, okay. And then you, you're taking up a sample of the seafloor, so probably, uh, is it a few centimetres off
1: the top? Um, the... The most common grab sampler is the the Smith McIntyre grab. That takes a tenth of a square metre surface area and its penetration varies depending on the sediment. So a soft sediment, it can push down quite deep. It's actually got some very powerful springs on the side to push the jaws of the grab into the sediment and you can get a really good um, grab sample in sand and mud. But once you're into the gravel and the pebble-sized sediments, its penetration is pretty poor. You need to start using different equipment, anchor dredges, perhaps, for that sort
0: of sediment. Okay, okay. So you're going through bringing up this sediment and then you're sorting through it, uh, looking at various levels as you mentioned earlier. And so what what are you actually trying to find when you're bringing up these samples? What are you trying to determine uh, in the area where you're sampling?
1: varies with the research program. Sometimes you're looking for the biodiversity values, so just a straight, flat-out, <clears throat> how many species per unit area does this system support? Sometimes you're looking at ecosystem services questions. Will this system be able to support this sort of sewage load or this sort of pollutant? How is that being cycled through the system? Sometimes you're looking at questions about human impacts like exotic marine pests. We've done a lot of survey work in Port Phillip, looking at the variety of marine pests that are arriving on ships' hulls and in ballast water, and how that's affecting the local faunal assemblages.
0: So what sort of pests are we talking about there?
1: In the case of the seafloor, or the soft sediment seafloor in Port Phillip, uh, little tiny cybellid polychaete worms, little filter-feeding worms, and a couple of species of bivalve molluscs, uh, little Asian mud clam turned up about 20 years ago and established itself very firmly in our soft sediment assemblages.
0: Okay and so now uh, we're we're sampling to see how the ocean floor is coping and and is that trying to determine whether we need to be doing a a cull or whether uh, the the native species are adapting?
1: Um, All of these things. Uh, A lot of research has gone into quantifying the impacts. There's almost nothing that can be done once a species has established because it's like having rabbits in your paddock and no way of fencing that paddock. The sea doesn't have those sorts of hard boundaries. So you can go and try and collect these organisms, but they're so small and you only have to miss a few and suddenly they're back next year. So mostly it's quantifying the problem and using any sort of impact as a lever to try and encourage people to better practices that prevent the next rabbits from turning up.
0: Right, Okay. So that's interesting you talk about quantifying the problem because probably one of the most uh, visible uh, or certainly within the media uh, visible problems that we have in Australia at the moment is the Great Barrier Reef where uh, coral is dying off. Could this sort of seafloor sampling, so obviously not sampling the coral but sampling the seafloor around it, could that help uh, determine what's going on there and what life is disappearing through the Great Barrier Reef?
1: As, as the reef is impacted, there will be a corresponding impact on the systems that are supported by the reef. Um, I think the, the reef bleaching itself is the, the most impactful result. I think you can see it, you know, you can even measure it from the air on a clear day you can you can see areas of reef that are being affected and i think that's perhaps the the strongest argument that we should be doing something about the problem
0: yeah most definitely so i guess in the the reef we have that uh, macro scale whereas you're looking at the micro scale where we don't have that macro available to us that's correct wonderful wonderful Okay, so we're looking at all of that, and the theme for this conference that we're going, uh, that you're going to be speaking at, is marine extremes. Uh, so we've been talking about a lot about uh, you know different areas that you've tested and what you're looking at. But what would you say as a as a marine researcher is the most extreme uh, situation you've been in uh, in your study?
1: Uh, I've worked for a couple of seasons as a diver at Scott Base, the the New Zealand presence in Antarctica in the Ross Sea and I yeah, I was working on a friend's research program diving under the sea ice to collect specimens and deploy experimental arrays. And it it's not as dangerous as it might sound. We we kept it very simple and adhered very closely to a, a, a strict set of safety guidelines. But just to to put on dive gear and plunge through a, a hole in three meter thick sea ice into very cold, very clear water, and just be able to, to go exploring where 100 years ago people were struggling to stay alive in their tents. Um, that was quite mind-blowing.
0: That does sound very extreme. I'm assuming you're in close to zero degree water temperatures there.
1: Yes, yeah. yes, but the, the the modern dry suits are pretty good. You can get a good, good length of dive without getting too cold.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and what sort of creatures were you seeing under the ice there
1: it's it's amazing the the diversity and the color and the, the the biomass was almost what i was accustomed to seeing around the coasts of southern new zealand and southern australia the main differences are that there are no intermediate sized fish and there are no crabs there's been some some point in the history of the glaciation of antarctica those those species were wiped out and they haven't been replaced so Things like the isopods, the little slaters that you'd find in your woodpile or out in your garden, the the marine equivalents have grown very large under the Antarctic sea ice. There's a species called Glyptonotus antarctica, and it is about the size of a mouse. And it's it's quite beautiful to look at. And it's just out in the open because there are no predatory fish that are able to tackle it. There's there's lots of small fish, but there's nothing the equivalent of a a flathead or a snapper is going to come around and have a munch on them and then the ribbon worms the, the Nemertian worms that you would also find out in your garden, perhaps in, in an onion bed, they're normally only a couple of millimetres across and maybe a hundred millimetres long at the outside but in Antarctica where there's no predators going to have a go at them, they've grown to a metre, a metre and a half long and about as thick as your thumb and again they're out in the open, they're out scavenging anything that's dead off the anchor ice and the anchor ice itself is quite amazing, it's we're accustomed to thinking of ice being buoyant and floating at the surface of our drinks, but ice will form wherever it's cold enough for ice to form. So in the shallows around the shorelines of Antarctica, down to about 30 metres, you find these beautiful glass-like plates of ice growing on the bottom. And because they are positively buoyant, um, when they grow big enough, they'll either break off the bottom and drift to the surface or lift up whatever they're attached to, whether that's an animal or a rock. So you sometimes find sea stars or sea urchins floating past you on a, on a raft of anchor ice. <laughs> just
0: just attached along for the ride.
1: And, oh, they, they end up embedded in the, in the sea ice at the surface, and if they can't wriggle themselves free, they'll just starve there and drift out to sea with the sea ice when it gets blown out to sea.
0: Wow. That's just such a, a different environment to anything we can even get close to here in Australia, isn't it?
1: It, it is. It's. There's there's a lot around the coast of Australia that I get excited about, but there, there's there's the the environments under the sea ice and the New Zealand fjords are another place that I've been. There's there's no analogue for that environment in Australia.
0: Yeah, no, I love the um, the comparison there too. Where at the moment you're looking at the very little stuff there, and when you're in Antarctica, you are seeing big little stuff.
1: <laughs> 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 it was quite a thrill because because that was the dominant sort of organism in that visual landscape and to see them so large and so bold they're not they're not living in fear of predators it was lovely to see them ruling the roost for once
0: yeah wonderful well thank you so much for sharing that with us Matthew it's uh, it's been wonderful to hear uh, of your experiences not only with the little stuff but uh, under the sea ice
1: too oh my pleasure thank you for your time
0: Matthew Macarthur there, talking about his experience in the marine extremes. And if you want to hear more from Matthew, you can. Uh, Up next weekend on June 3 and June 4, down at the Sapphire Coast, uh, the Marine Discovery Centre there is hosting their annual marine science forum, all about marine extremes. More details for that can be found on our Facebook page there, and I'll give you the full details at the end of today's show but uh, I think it's time to move straight on. Our next guest joining us on the show today is Dr John Runsey. Now John's joining us from the Central Coast where he operates his own uh, business now but before that he got his PhD in marine biology from Sydney University, then went to do some postdoctoral research in Hawaii and from there uh, then start, was invited to uh, the Australian Antarctic Division and that's where I want to start with my first question John. What could possibly tempt you from warm tropical Hawaii to the Antarctic?
2: Well I always had a a dream to go to the Antarctic and I'd applied to do that um, over a number of years and eventually um, the opportunity came up to go and do some work in Hawaii which I took and then as these things tend to happen um, six months into that position in Hawaii the opportunity came to go to the Antarctic so I was torn, I was torn what what did I want to do and um, so I talked to my colleagues in Hawaii and it was possible to arrange a project where I Managed that from afar. So there's a number of staff over there who, who conducted that. And I went to the Antarctic, which has always been a dream. And um, it was great. A great time. Did some good science. And um, ended up going back a number of times, continuing that research. And uh, yeah, I've always had a, a fascination for the Antarctic. But, and uh, the, contrast, the contrast between the two is quite, quite, quite astounding. Yeah, well,
0: that's what I'm thinking. I mean, this... this... Uh, conference that you're speaking at is all about the extremes you know marine extremes and i think i think there is is the extreme especially down in antarctica there must be uh some amazing uh science and research that you can do that down there to be able to get you to stay in that freezing cold environment
2: well one of the one of the key attractions to the antarctic for me was the ability to actually dive there and in the australian program that's only in the last what, I suppose it's 15 years or so we've been doing that. Um, Before then, there was some diving done in the 80s. Uh, But now things are so regulated that it's taken quite a a lot of effort to continue that that facility to be able to dive down there. So doing marine research in the Antarctic underwater was um, a perfect thing for me, having done a lot of field work over in Hawaii and around here in Australia. To go and explore that new environment was an opportunity not to be missed.
0: Well, our, our first speaker earlier today, Matthew Macarthur, was talking about his diving in the Antarctic, and he, he was amazed by some of the uh, the smaller creatures that he'd normally see, like the ribbon worms or the um, the slater bug-like creatures that are normally quite small underwater that were much larger in the Antarctic waters. What what was it that surprised you about the Antarctic?
2: There's a species down there called Hermaetus and that's um, that's the genus name. It's an enormous um, it's enormous seaweed, and this this is one of the really striking aspects down there. You had this uh, a bay where there's a lot of this Sontasella seaweed. It has a stipe or a stalk that extends about a meter from the sea floor, and then it, and the, the whole um, blade of the seaweed drops down onto the ground and it runs for up to ten meters. These things are huge. It's like a like an Acclonia plant, but on steroids. It's oversized Acclonia, if you like. It's um, and there's lots of these things. And so we did some research looking at the photophysi- photophysiology of these, these um, seaweeds in uh, relatively shallow water in 10 metres. And then later on we had the opportunity to go to one of the uh, the more offshore islands down at Casey Station in the Windmill Island. And um, just um, diving down to probably down to 20 metres, we're restricted to dive to 30 because of the Australian regulations for us. But diving at that depth at 20 metres, you could see down. And this, this alga was present to at least 50 metres more like 70 metres. As many of your listeners will be aware that the water down in the Antarctic is very clear. So being able to see to the sea floor um, at 70 metres depth is not difficult down there. And so this this alga is not only um, abundant in shallow water, it's abundant in very deep water as well. And it's just a fabulous place to, to see things.
0: Marine plants seem to be uh, taking a big focus of uh, both your research and your, your work now. Um, and you're talking about seeing those algae uh, in, in really deep waters. Now, that's quite surprising for algae, isn't it? Because normally plants rely on the process of photosynthesis or, or getting sunlight to them. Uh, so is it surviving there because of the super clear water or is there something else going on?
2: Well, that's. that's- Partly what we've been looking into, these seaweeds cope with a very changing light environment over a year. In the winter, in the locations that we dived and saw these very deep um, amantithalis, in the winter that's covered in sea ice, and as you know in winter there's less light. At, at the latitude of Casey, it's a little bit above the Antarctic Circle, so there actually is a little bit of sunlight. The, the sun never actually drops below the horizon, but um, it certainly gets dim in, in winter, in mid-winter, you'll have mostly night time. So the upshot of all that is that these seaweeds see very little light um, for a good half of the year. And then during the year, um, and the sun comes up in the summer, there's more light, but there's still sea ice. So the sea ice tends to break out earlier out 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 to the outshore islands, the offshore islands, then it breaks out later on the inshore islands. These seaweeds cope with a fair amount of light in summer, and especially during the time when the sun is at the highest in, um, in late December. But what happens is, and this is um result of some of the research that we did and we published this in uh, Global Change Biology, I think it was, the period of water clarity tends to um, drop very quickly. So what happens is the sea ice breaks out, at least on the inshore location. After the sea ice has broken out, you've got a very clear water for maybe four days. And then we were seeing large... High density phytoplankton blooms occurring, and so what that means is you've got a four day window of very very bright light at a depth, and then a lot of that light is attenuated by all the all the um, the phytoplankton coming in. So essentially, these these plants they not only cope with a lot of darkness over most of the year, but when they get their really bright light, they only get it for a very very short window. It might only be a week or four days or so.
0: Okay, so that's seeming to me like it's uh, it's not really getting the, the ex- huge amounts of sunlight that we might expect in super clear water. So how are these uh, plants surviving at this depth? What adaptations have they made?
2: They store. They, they just crank. They just go really hard in terms of their photosynthetic activity during um, high-light periods, and they put away um, storage products, and then they feed on those storage products during the winter. The Antarctic waters are unique and there's a lot of nutrients down there as opposed to, to, to other polar parts of the world in the north. So in the Antarctic you've got high nutrient concentrations in the water, in the coastal waters. The plants have a lot of sunlight for a fairly short period of time so they go as hard as they can to store as much material inside them and that'll keep them going over the winter.
0: So it's almost like a, a bear hibernating.
2: Very much, yeah, yeah. So some of these seaweeds can actually survive um, over over a summer where the sea ice doesn't break out. And so there's been some work done at McMurdo, which is further south, below the um, Antarctic Circle, south of the Antarctic Circle. And those seaweeds have been found in locations where the sea ice didn't break out for for the previous season, so they've been in the dark for quite a while. So so when it's um, in summer, you can imagine the sea ice is on the sea. It's maybe 2 metres thick or 1.6 metres. But if you've got a lot of snow on that sea ice, which is quite often the case, then um, the light has reduced considerably. So it got much darker. So some of the diving we did down at Casey where there was a lot of snow on the sea ice, you'd need a torch. It was so dark. This is in, um, this is in summer, <laughs> but um, it was very, very dark. So a combination of sea ice and snow, and if that doesn't break out in one summer, then that seaweed that's down the bottom has experienced a very limited amount of light, a light budget over that two-year period.
0: And yet they still survive. That's just amazing. Mm-hmm. And so are there applications for this for above-ground plants, for plants that humans can feed on?
2: That's a good question. So all, all plants behave differently. It would be interesting to see if some of the, the plants that we find useful for us or, or that we know are useful for ecosystems have an ability to cope with a very low light level. There's a lot of plasticity in plants um, within a with even within a species different individuals can behave and cope with quite different environments so whether we want to find plants which can adapt very well or whether we want to see if we can manipulate plants to help them adapt these are these are questions we should address
0: definitely because I feel like uh, with a, a lot of plant growth at the moment if we want to start uh, recreating that in an artificial sense one of the biggest uh, sources of energy that we do need for that is light uh, so working with these plants that can survive without that light would be uh, would be really interesting to compare those results from uh, down deep in with within the antarctic
2: mm. some of the other work that that I've done over in hawaii was related in a similar way in the sense that we looked at seaweeds which are very very deep and that sort of ties into the picture about how seaweeds use light. So we're looking at seaweeds down to as deep as we could get them at that location, which ended up being at least two hundred meters.
0: Okay. And so when we're looking at these deep seaweeds too, what sort of life are they supporting, either in the Antarctic, in the, in the cold deep water, or or over in the deep deep depths of the Hawaii waters?
2: Well, it's diverse. It's quite a diverse environment. Um, animals don't need light, so they can they can go you know way deeper than a, the than the um, the light limits, if you like. So in the Antarctic, um, there was lots of invertebrates in some of the the for example, another genus down there that's sort of more furry. Lots of amphipod type animals in there. Lots of invertebrates underneath the canopy, as you'd find in a temperate environment um, on the east coast of Australia, It is similar down in the Antarctic, and and also similar in Hawaii. As soon as you have some. Um, topographic complexity, you have some habitat for these small organisms to live, then you will find lots of them. And that's what I've seen in both locations. For example, in Hawaii, um, you have these these uh, reefs, old reefs which have been submerged I presume, and they're uh, like flat tabular rocks with um, undercut, and there's caves underneath. And there's always these little fish, fish all over the place going through here. And then if you look down into, in amongst the seaweeds themselves, then you can find lots and lots of little invertebrates in there. So the, the complexity in these environments is amazing. And the more complex it is, the more, um, the more physically complex it is, the more habitat it provides, the more little organisms you'll get. And and they're the bottom parts of the food chain.
0: It's almost like a, a build it and they will come. If the plants grow, it'll bring along more with it.
2: That's right, that's right. Yeah. Yep. And so the, the animals can actually use the plants as a, as a source of food. But also as a source of protection and, and habitat, habitat being protection largely.
0: And so, when we're looking at these depths, what stresses is a human impact having on uh, these these plants down there? Are we is our impact descending that low in the water?
2: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so going um, well. The simplest at the simplest point in Hawaii down at about oh, 140 meters there's a plastic bag. Down at 100, and another.
0: 140 metres.
2: Yep, just a plastic bag, you know, kicking on the bottom. Wow. And there's a bit of an old fishing rod, and there's this, and there's that. There's bits of rubbish that are just down there, and so, you know, we we see this rubbish down when we go diving or snorkeling around the coast here in Eastern Australia, but you know, all over the world, there's just little bits of rubbish that just go down to the bottom and they sit there, and and as we know, animals tend to eat them and they suffocate, or they they um they starve to death. It creates all sorts of problems. So that's that's the first level. That's the most obvious physical problem that humans are creating in, in these waters. The other aspect is relating back to that, that short window of time that we have in the Antarctic where those deep seaweeds are using as much light as they can to enable them to survive over that winter when there's no light. So if we... What we've found, what we've found is that the, the sea ice breakout time is actually... Um, occurring earlier. And it's quite an interesting interesting point. As the sea ice um, breakout time happens earlier, then that more or less four-day window where the phytoplankton haven't bloomed yet and you get the most amount of light, you really want that four-day window to be at the time when um, the days are the longest, so around the it, 21st of December, something like that.
0: Yeah, that sounds like the summer solstice.
2: Exactly, yeah. yeah. So what happens is since the sea ice is breaking out earlier in the year, and this is an observation we've made over the last, I think it's over the last 20 years, it's become apparent. But we've done some work; some work has been done down the Antarctic Division at Casey, looking at sea ice breakout, and I think it's fairly clear that it is getting breaking out earlier. So therefore, the days are getting shorter because the breakout time maybe 10 years ago. Um, now it's I can't remember how many days it's it's it's, it's going back, but Essentially, the days are shorter. So if, if our influence on the climate is causing the sea ice to break out earlier because of a change in, in atmospheric temperature, for example, then the flow-on effect of that is not as much light as getting down to these deep-water algae, as would normally be the case. The consequence is they don't get as much light as they normally would.
0: And when you only and, get light for four days of the year, a, a few hours can make a huge difference, I'm guessing.
2: Exactly. makes an enormous difference. And so the consequence of all of that is that the lower depth limit of these deepwater algae should start to rise, they should start to shallow, become, become less deep, which means they've got less, um, less habitat essentially to cover. So there'll be less, less deepwater um, macroalgae and less deepwater macroalgal habitat for all the other organisms that use those algae, and that's in the Antarctic. In the Hawaiian system, it's quite different. The, um, the location where we did the submersible dives is um, off an island called Molokai, and uh, there's a lot of sedimentation coming off Molokai. And so a lot of silt and sand and stuff comes off that reef, over the reef and into the sea. And essentially these um, the third finger, which was a, a geographical feature we dived on, uh, has a lot of silt, lots of silt. And so we looked at the depth limit for different species on that on that um, underwater ridge and so we did profiles up and down the the ridge and observed species which basically stopped at certain depths and comparing those depths with depths over in the Bahamas which is um, very clear, very clear water Um, one of the published papers there was from a seamount and so the seamount gets a lot of um, oceanographic water and no terrigenous sediment so no sediment from land so presumably there's very little Sand and silt on that seamount, and the seaweeds that they reported um, there had far, well, had deeper depths. So the depth limit was deeper. Whereas where we were, where there's a lot of sediment coming from the land from agricultural practices, the deepest depth of a species was less deep, was shallower. And so, so there you can see a direct comparison between a, a seamount out in the middle of the ocean, Bahamas, which is not affected by humans in terms of silt and then a location very close to an island which is putting out a lot of silt.
0: Well look, thank you very much for your time to discuss all that today John. It's been uh, really interesting hearing about these these amazing plants that are surviving in their extreme environment without the light that really helps them live. But I, I've got one extreme question before you go <laughs> um, because as, as I said the focus is extremes. You've talked about diving in Antarctica but what about you living in that extreme environment, what was the most uh, extreme change that you found when you were based down there?
2: The the Australian bases, well, the Australian base that I went to at Casey Station is very civilised. And so the biggest shock is walking outside sometimes, walking outside and it's minus 15, and you go, "Oh, it's cold, looking around a bit and thinking, oh, well, I am in Antarctica, of course it's cold and then you become accustomed to it, and in 10 minutes you've forgotten about it. I mean, that's, that's probably one of the biggest shocks. But actually living and working down at the station is, um, is very civilised. It's very... Um, you're you looked after. The, the, way that, the way that the Antarctic Division has set the place up is that you're comfortable enough and safe enough to do your work. And one of the things I've always thought um, going down there and diving, which is inherently dangerous, is that I feel safe diving with... People I work with down there, because not only do they have systems in place to keep us safe, but the people are also safe. I feel I feel comfortable doing those sorts of things down there. So perhaps in the old days, working in the Antarctic was was pretty risky and pretty dangerous. And and yes, it is risky and dangerous. If you, you know, if you get stuck in a blizzard and you haven't got enough shelter, then you can very quickly lose temperature, and that's um that's not good. But Quite frankly, the way things are set up these days, it's, it's a safe place as long as you play by the Antarctica's rules. <laughs> then, um, then you've got it; you can have a good experience and 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 be be well.
0: It almost sounds like a nice place for a holiday, the way you put it.
2: Mm. <laughs> mm.
0: <laughs> well, look, thank you very much for sharing with us today, John, and joining us here on
2: Fuzzy Logic. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you.
0: Dr John Runcie there talking about his experience in the marine world. Aren't these just amazing experiences these scientists get to have? You never thought this would uh, be part of someone's job, would you? But this is what they do. They do amazing work out there. And as I've said earlier, there is a chance to hear more from these folks talking at the Marine Science Forum happening down at the Sapphire Coast, the Sapphire Coast Marine Discovery Centre there. More details on our Facebook page and at the end of the show where you can hear from these scientists and even more. Our final guest joining us today is uh, joining us all the way from Adelaide. And in fact, I've got something in common with this next guest. Nathan Janetsky is a PhD student at my alma mater, Flinders University, uh, down at the School of Biological Sciences there. Welcome along, Nathan. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Yeah, we, we were very different schools. I was at the School of Chemistry when I was at Flinders. Um, but one thing I did love about being back in Adelaide was all the beaches. So so my first question for you is, what's your favourite beach in Adelaide?
3: Well, we can actually go for a bit of an interesting story about beaches. Yeah. I only moved to Adelaide uh, in 2009, and I'd actually never been here before then. Um, so when I actually started my honours... Um, which was my sort of independent, or well, my first, got an independent research project. I actually had to put some boulders down on various beaches to see what sort of uh, animals uh, prefer the different types of rock off the boulders. Um, and, and never having been to Adelaide, I actually put them down on Maslin Beach, um, <laughs> which, which for the listeners who wouldn't know, is actually a nudist beach. Um, but because I actually put them out in winter, that the beach was deserted. Um, and I had no idea what was going on. So when I turned up again the following summer, I couldn't believe what was going on, and I found that, you know, my, my boulders surrounded by, really, was just sort of naked old men in particular.
0: <laughs> uh, I, I feel like that was the, uh, the office prank on the new scientist.
3: <laughs> well, they actually let me sort of pick where I wanted to put them. Um, what I didn't realise was that Maslin's Beach sort of had two entry points, and I picked the wrong one. Um, If I'd gone around the other side, it was the non-nudist section. Uh, Not being a local, I wasn't aware of that and sort of made a bit of a meal of it, really.
0: (laughs) Indeed, indeed. Well, it makes a good story. Well, the interesting thing about Maslins is it is a a, a beautiful area through there with amazing rock formations. Was that why you had chosen that area?
3: Uh, Yeah, so the the limestone from Maslins Beach was one of the rocks we were looking at. We were trying to see whether... um, invertebrates preferred limestone or siltstone as, as a habitat type. Um, so that's why we actually picked Maslins uh, as one of the sites to look at. But I just didn't realise uh, what else Maslins was actually used for, unfortunately, until it was
0: a bit too late. <laughs> yeah, and you can't you can't change it once you've got them sitting there for six months. You don't want to have no, to it. No, for...
3: especially not with honours. It only goes for nine months. So you sort of you know, stuck with what you've done.
0: Yeah, indeed, indeed. Okay, well, moving on from Maslin's to your your PhD research now, it sounds like you you actually um, continued on that work, looking at at rocks into your PhD. So, yeah, kind of give us the the overview of your research now. Uh,
3: So it's a little bit more applied, a little bit more focused moving forward. Um, So we started to find some very uh, interesting patterns uh, from honours and we sort of wanted to build upon that. So we continued that same experiment. So I still use Maslin's Beach as a site uh, all these years later. <laughs> um, but we look at sort of longer term responses to rock type. Um, so rather than just leaving them out on the seashore for three or four months we did not honours, we see um, what's living on them five or six years later down the track um, to see whether that we get sort of different responses over time. Um, we've also done a lot of stuff using thermal imagery to start, sort of understand how the or how different rocks have different temperatures first and foremost uh, and then how the plants and animals that live on those rocks actually respond to their temperature.
0: Okay, so rocks having different temperatures, is that just because of the, the nature of, of different rocks have different minerals, different chemicals inside them so they absorb heat in different ways?
3: Yeah, um, so we sort of found that there's a few different factors involved here. Obviously some rocks have very different colours. Um, So some are much paler, others uh, much darker, so that affects how much heat they reflect and absorb. Uh, But also some rocks contain a a lot of metallic compounds, things like aluminium and iron, and they tend to be a lot hotter than rocks that lack aluminium and iron, for example. Okay.
0: Okay. Yeah, that used to be one of my favourite things down at Brighton Beach, which was my local, uh, was when the sun would set and it would start to get a bit cold, you'd go to the rocks at the back of the beach and they'd still be warm from the sunlight and still exuding a bit of heat so you could stay warm after the sun had set on the beach, which was lovely. Um, But in this case, you're looking at the temperature of the rocks and so are you looking at creatures that are trying to keep warm on those rocks or are they heading towards the cooler?
3: Uh, Well, so what we've actually tried to do, first of all, so we've measured the different rocks. What we've found is that each rock has its own specific temperature. Uh, And then what we've actually gone out to try and do is figure out what does that temperature actually mean for the animals which would use that rock as a habitat. So I've actually focused at this stage on just three species of grazing snail. Um, We've picked those snails because they're the most easy to find, so we get a lot of data for them. And what we actually find for those three species of snail is that they try and avoid the heat. Because if you're a snail, you like to stay sort of wet, you like to stay cool. It's not good to get hot and dry. Um, so what we're finding is that those snails are actually responding to temperature by moving away from the hottest parts of the rock and trying to find some of the coolest parts because that's really their best chance of survival.
0: Okay, so how, how are you going about this research? Are you going out and doing little snail censuses?
3: Um, so what we do is we have, a, we have a thermal imaging camera. So the thermal imaging camera uh, lets us measure the temperature of the rocks. And we basically find that most of these snails live underneath boulders. So we flip the boulders upside down and we take a thermal image. Um, And basically then we take the the maximum, the minimum and the average temperatures of the boulder surface. And then we relate those temperatures back to the actual temperature of where the snail itself is sitting. And then we basically see if the snail is sitting beneath the maximum, above the minimum and how does that relate to the average?
0: Okay, and yes, yeah, so I see if they're finding the coldest spots overall. Yep. Yeah. And, and what do you hope to... Uh, where does, what does this research lead into? Where does that apply to in, in the greater scheme of things?
2: Well, at the moment, I suppose,
3: that there's a lot of talk about uh, what's going to happen with climate change. But before we can even start to predict what's going to happen with climate change, I think we need to actually understand how these organisms just interact normally with their environment. Um, If we don't know what the temperature of the rock is and we don't know how these organisms respond to that temperature, how can we ever predict what's going to happen down the track with climate change? So by actually just showing under these sort of normal Adelaide summer conditions that these snails do in fact respond to the temperature of the rocks, then we can start to see, well, what does this temperature actually mean for their persistence and survival in these locations? Because what we've been able to show is that some of these snails are actually occupying locations on really hot days that are actually um, enough to induce heat coma, so that's where they lose uh, normal muscle functioning. Um, So I guess for people who aren't aware, Adelaide gets really hot in summer. Um, We're talking temperatures on the seashore, air temperatures of around 39 to 40 degrees on some of the hottest days. So that translates to a rock temperature of between maybe 45 and 55 degrees. Um, And even if a snail could find the coolest spot to occupy, the temperature of 45 to 55 degrees for some snail species isn't great.
0: Okay, so yeah, so we don't want uh, snails going into heat comas and that sort of thing. And what's going to happen when they start moving about? Is there any other sea life that uh, predates on these snails?
3: So those snails provide food for a number of other organisms on the seashore. So a lot of the smaller snails get eaten by crabs. Um, Some of your seabirds will eat them. And obviously stuff sort of subtly like fish um, will also get stuck into them as well. So, yeah, they're a very important resource in terms of, you know, your food chain, your food web on the seashore.
0: Sorry, you go.
3: I was going to say they're also not supposed to do that here in South Australia, but they are also um, harvested as a food resource for humans.
0: Ah, okay. Is that a a traditional uh, thing or is that uh, a bit more more recent?
3: uh, It's more of a cultural thing um, from from some cultures, uh, particularly um, people migrating to Australia. Um, but in South Australia, because the species are pretty vulnerable, they don't move around. So it's very easy to pick everything off the seashore and have nothing left. Um, so in South Australia, they've actually sort of tried to stop that from happening by telling people, you know, you're not allowed to actually remove um, or anything from the seashore that's actually living there to a depth of two metres.
0: Yeah, OK. So that's, that's a really important uh, way to stop um, mass extinction, I'm guessing.
3: Yeah, um, certainly the population suffered for a period of time. The Legislation came in about 20 years ago now, but from all reports before that time, there are a lot of areas, particularly along the metropolitan coast, um, that, that really suffered. And as I say, it's very easy to go and pick these guys off the seashore because they don't move around much, um, so it's not hard to sort of pick clean entire areas of seashore in just a single low tide.
0: Yeah. Indeed. So we're tracking these. They have an effect on the food chain. Do you think that these snails could be a good indicator towards the future um, As if we do start seeing changes on our shores, uh, that the snails might be able to indicate uh, greater troubles ahead? Uh, If
3: there could really be an indicator species as such, um, I think there's just too much we still don't know at this stage. Um, I mean, the only reason we focused on snails at this point was because they were they were easy to find. and They were the most abundant here. So certainly we're starting to get an understanding of, of how they respond to conditions now, and then we can start to predict what might happen in the future. But there are so many other animals out there that might have very different responses. So we haven't looked at things like, you know, anemones, urchins, crabs... Um, and some of those species don't move around at all, so they're going to be sort of stuck wherever they pick, whereas things like crabs are much more mobile, so maybe they have less to be concerned about. These are the things we just don't know at this stage.
0: Right, so in, in reality here, your your research is is really just about developing that base level understanding uh, so we can move on to, to discover more.
3: Yeah, it really is. I mean, when we were actually going through what had been done on rocky seashores, we
2: were we were amazed
3: to find out that it was really hard to just find out what the temperatures were of different rocks. So, our first step was actually to go out and find the different rocks to get on the seashore and just measure their temperature. Because once we sort of had that information, we were able to start to think, well, how are these organisms going to respond to temperature? Because we know that temperature on the seashore is one of those key stresses, um, which really plays quite a profound role in, in determining what species and assemblages can exist there. But if, you don't actually know what the temperature of the rock is. How can you really sort of start to understand how they're going to interact with the temperature of their environment? That was really our first step. What is the temperature of their
0: rocks? Mm. And is, is human uh, impact, uh, so not so much through climate change, but directly on our, our seashores with, with many people using them, is that having an impact on uh, the? the snail populations and the, the temperatures, or is it something that's reasonably uh, out of the, our influence there?
3: Uh, I don't think in terms of human intrusion on well, the seashore would really affect temperature that much. As I say, probably the biggest threat. I mean, you do get some trampling on seashores. I think the ones around Adelaide, though, there's a lot of beaches, and I think most people actually tend to recreate at beaches. Um, seashores aren't that nice to go swimming at. Um, so I reckon really their biggest threat is actually sort of illegal harvesting um, in terms of people intruding on seashores.
0: Yeah, okay. Well, look, thank you very much for uh, sharing some of your research with us, Nathan. Uh, it's yep. been been really interesting to see, and, I mean, and as we've been saying all throughout this episode, this marine forum that you're talking about is all about the extremes, and I guess... You must have uh, some of the extremes in your work because do you collect from the extremes of winter through to summer on those beaches doing those the studies uh, of the snails? So
3: we certainly have gone from the depths of winter so we get temperatures about as cold as 13 degrees uh, but I guess our real extremes are the heat of summer so we're getting air temperatures as high as 43
0: um,
3: and that's a pretty unpleasant experience when you sort of mix it in with the humidity generated by the, the sea as well down there.
0: Yeah, I suppose at least at the end of a, a day collecting, though, you can just go for a dip afterwards, right?
3: Well, don't tell the university that. <laughs> uh, like us getting taken by sharks and whatnot. Um, with all the workplace health and safety these days, you've got to be very careful.
0: Just, we'll just say you're paddling in the shallows then. All right. <laughs> very good. Well, thank you very much once again, Nathan, for joining us here on Fuzzy Logic. All right. Thank you for having me on. Nathan Janetsky there, PhD candidate at Flinders University, rounding out our guest on today's show. It has been a wonderful show talking marine science. I always love diving under the water because it's a world we just can't see from above. And if you want to dive in further and find out more about it, then you can at the Sapphire Coast Marine Discovery Centre's annual marine science forum. It's happening June 3 and 4, so that's Saturday and Sunday next weekend down at the RSL Club in Marimbula. If you want to a book, Uh, You can search for Sapphire Coast Marine Science Forum or head to the Fuzzy Logic Facebook page where I've posted all the details on there. You can still buy tickets. They are available. Lunch and snacks included in the forum. It's great value, only $40. So go and check it out and you can really get more involved in this marine science and the marine world. That is kind of Canberra's coast down at the Sapphire Coast Discovery Centre there. Well, that wraps it up for another episode of Fuzzy Logic. Thanks again to all our speakers for joining us here. My name is Broderick Matthews, and we'll catch you right here on 98.3fM 2x community radio next week for Fuzzy Logic: Your Science on a Sunday.